about you. Thank you for reminding us that there is no righteousness apart from the one that you offer us. Thank you for loving us in such a great, great way. And so we humble our hearts before you this day, asking you, Holy Spirit, open our ears, penetrate our hearts, captivate our minds, that we may respond to your truth in faith. Father, remove distractions and be glorified in the preaching and hearing of your word today. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you don't have an outline, please raise your hand and the ushers will get you an outline. We want to be sure, as always, that you're able to follow along in the introduction of the message, that you're able to take notes. And as always, I challenge you as a disciple of Jesus Please utilize the outline as a tool for you to be able to help someone else grow in their faith. Um, if you'll sit down with someone and simply talk to them about what you heard on Sunday, it will help you grow and retain what you have learned, but it will also help them grow in their faith. And so I pray that you will utilize that. Um, if you look at your outline here, we all like good news. How many of y'all like good news? Anybody like good news? I know some of y'all going to the mail, you go, to, you go to the mailbox, you're waiting for that letter. Hey, amen, right? You're waiting for that special good news. You hate when you get bad news, though, right? You see certain letters, you're like, I don't even want that. It's the wrong address, right? You wish you could send it back to the sender. Um, but given the opportunity, right, or the option, we all choose bad news first. How many of you ever, have ever been given the option where, you know, hey, you want the bad news or you want the good news? How many of y'all choose the bad news first? Raise your hand. Come on. All right. How many, how, how many choose the good news first? All right, no one. See, you know why? The reason is because we hope that the good news, right, removes that sting of the bad news. That's the reason why we do that. The reality is that we live in a world that thrives off of bad news, though. You ever, you ever realize that? Like, you turn on the news, like, the other day, I mean, if you want to be depressed, just turn on the 11 o'clock news, right? I mean, just, because they're going to run down every bad thing that has happened. They're going to tell you about every, every, every person who got shot. They're going to tell you about every house that was broken into. They're going to tell you about every bad thing this person did, that person did. They're going to give you the negative, the negative, the negative all day long. That's what they're going to do. Our culture thrives on that, right? If they were giving you good news, the reality, and this is sad, because the truth is that we probably wouldn't watch the news. Hello. If it was all good news, we wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't pay attention as much. But we love, I mean, we thrive off of bad news. Why? Because bad news sells. Bad news draws attention. We love drama. Come on now. I, I, know, I, I know it's a little early, right? But we love drama, right? I mean, you think about the videos. You know, I think about some of the videos that are out there, like on YouTube and, and, and things that go viral, right? Like, I think about those sometimes and I'm like, man, I can't believe I'm watching this. Hello. Right? I can't, I, I can't believe that I'm looking at this. I, I can't believe that I am seeing this and, and, and I'm actually like entertained by this, right? You know, there, there are certain things. I, I watch videos, you know, sometimes and obviously everybody does, you know, some people do, I don't know. But, you know, I, I don't know about you, but like if I go on YouTube sometimes, what will happen to me is I end up an hour later. Like what happened? Like, like I, I went there to see one video and all of a sudden I started going and, I, and I'm, I'm looking at all. And then, you know, the, the, there's these some videos and I'm, I'm being completely honest with you. I've watched some of them parts and usually I'll see them when they come up on somebody's news feed. Um, but there'll be like a fight where somebody's in a fight, like some kids are in a fight. And I'm like thinking to myself, like, okay, so somebody was videotaping this fight and then somebody went and posted it somewhere. Why didn't someone break up the fight? 
Why do they do that? Like, like, why didn't they jump in? Like, because I know this. I can, I can assure you of this. While I watched the video for whatever reason, I don't know why I did that. But while I watched the video, I can assure you if I was standing there, I wouldn't pull out my phone and be like, let me record this so I can go and put this on YouTube and see if this gets a whole bunch of likes. Right? Like, I wouldn't do that. Right? But our culture does stuff like that because what? Because we like the drama. Bad news, though, can I tell you something? It is the result of sin that has corrupted mankind. You know why we got so much bad news? Because of the worst thing that happened way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Sin has corrupted us. And so now there is this bad news thing, this frenzy that happens. And you and I have to realize something from a biblical perspective. The good news is greatly enhanced when we understand the gravity of the bad news. I want you to know that if you didn't realize this, the scriptures that we read today, verses 1 through 20, right? And if you have your outline there, it, it shows you the breakdown of the book of Romans. And we're ending that portion where everyone is guilty, and, and I just want to let you know that as I was reading this, as I was studying this, there were moments, and I, I, I don't know why, there were moments that I literally was like there, it was like I was holding my breath. And I was, I was so overwhelmed by what God was saying in the book of Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 20 when he deals with the depravity of man, when he deals with the sinfulness of man. I want you to know that this is bad news. This is not some make you smile message. It, it may not happen today. It may, you may not walk out of here feeling better about yourself, but I hope you will feel better about Jesus. It's so appropriate, the song that we sang, it's all about you. Jesus at the center. I think that if you look at the book of Romans, what Paul would say is the entirety of the book of Romans is that Jesus is at the center of it all. It's not about man being elevated. It's about God being elevated. It's about God being glorified. It's about God being lifted up. And our lives have to be that way. It has to be that Jesus is at the center and that we are lifting him up, that we are giving him glory, that we are bringing him praise. And I want you to think about this this morning. The sooner we recognize that God alone is good, the sooner we will start living in total surrender and reliance upon him and his grace. I'll say that again. The sooner we recognize that God alone is good, the sooner we will start living in total surrender and reliance upon him and his grace. If there's one thing that I know from chapter 1 all the way to where we are in chapter 3 is that we are not good by the standards of God. Listen, we're good people, right? There's good people out there. You know people that are good, but there is no one who is perfectly good. Are you here? There is no one who is perfectly good, and there is no one who is always good. Listen, I don't, I don't care. I know like some of us have an idea in our head, like maybe our spouse, and some of you are like, not my spouse, but anyway. Right? Like, like my parents, some of you are like, not my parents, right? You know, my children, definitely not my children, right? But, 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 but some of us have an idea in our mind that there is someone who, they're good. Like that person, you can't think of them doing anything bad. You've never caught them in a lie. You've never seen them cheat someone. You've never seen them do something wrong that you would say, man, that's a bad person. But I want you to know that person is not perfectly good and that person is not always good. That person has a sinful nature just like you and I. That person is just as imperfect as you and I are. And the reality is the sooner that you and I recognize that we're not good, you know what we do? We surrender to God and we say, Lord, I depend on you and I depend upon your grace. And so the first thing I'm going to ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, God's righteousness, God's righteousness refutes, refutes our points of justification. 
God's righteousness refutes our points of justification. And so the Apostle Paul has already gone and he has already dismantled and he has already destroyed any ideas. But he's just like bringing the closing. It's like he's coming home, right? He's coming home. He's bringing this thing home. And what he does is he continues on in this rhetorical argument. And you have to remember that the culture in those days, people were like real, real, real witty. And, and they liked to, you know, they had these people that were great orators. And these people loved to argue and debate ideologies and thoughts. And so there was this... This rhetoric that went on and they were always trying to convince you of whatever they believed and so what the apostle Paul does throughout this book is he is going with this concept of rhetoric and he is communicating to them forcefully and bringing point after point after point to drive home that it is all about Jesus and when he comes to this portion of the book of Romans chapter 3, as he's wrapping this up here, he's bringing this, this point to a thought. Here's what I want you to know, and I've said this before. Sinners need justification. Sinners need justification. We need justification. Everybody on this planet is walking around in a justified state right now. I need you to understand that. You are walking around in a justified state right now. You are either, you're justified in your behaviors. You do things and you're justified while you do them. You know what? You get to work early and there's a justification for that. Or you get to work late and there's a justification for that. Are you here? I'm just saying, like there's certain things we do every day. The way you treat your spouse, you are living in a place of justification because you believe that you have a right or a reason to do that. That's just a reality. The way you treat your neighbors, there's a justification to that. We all walk around in a place of justification. All of us do. We all walk around like that because we as sinners need justification. We always seek it. How we seek it is different, right? And this is what I've said before as well. We either seek justification through rationalization of our sin. For example, I only did A, B, C, and D to you because you did X, Y, and Z to me. Are you here? I only treat so-and-so like that because so-and-so has done A, B, C, and D. Wait a second. You know what that is? That is rationalization of your treatment of that person. Mystery. Hey, can I tell you something? I want you to know this. Here, here's what busts down all of that rationalization of how we deal with people. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, love your enemies, period. So knock the rationalization down. There's no justification to treat anybody in a wrong way. Are you here? I know we don't want to hear that stuff. But that's just reality. I can't, I can't hold a grudge against you. I can't walk around and just be mad at you. I can't. Now, listen, I may have to hold you at a certain length distance because you are an abusive person or you're whatever. That's, that, that's not a thing of forgiveness. But here's the thing. How do you feel in your heart toward that person? We see we walk around with that. Or the other way that we see justification is through repentance of our sin. We recognize our sin. We acknowledge our sin. We admit our sin. And we address our sin. That's what we do when we are seeking God's justification. And the Apostle Paul runs right into this, I mean, hardcore, and he begins with this rhetorical questioning. I mean, he comes with this diatribe, which is just forceful communication. I love Paul. I want you to know something. I love, love, love Paul because I know that him and I are cut from the same cloth because I'm a, I'm a forceful kind of guy. I mean, I like to make my point. I like to make it strong, right? I like to make sure that I'm clear. I like to make sure that I come in there. I mean, I'm coming in there with guns blazing. I'm not coming into an argument half-cocked. I'm coming in there ready to win. I mean, that's just reality, especially when it comes with the gospel, especially when it comes with the gospel. The reality is this. I know I'm not always right. There's no question about that. When it comes to Jesus, I'm always right. Are you here? 
Jesus is always the answer to my sin. He's always a solution to a person who is going in the wrong direction. When it comes to Christ, if I use Jesus the way the Bible tells me to, I'm always right and so are you. When we walk and we live and we communicate that truth. And so Paul comes with this, he comes with this thing. What he does is he begins to put himself in the position and he has this argument. Throughout the book of Romans, he's having an argument with almost a fictitious person. Right? It's someone who is there. When I say fictitious, is that there's no particular person. It's not like he's saying, you know what? Pastor Aldo asked me these questions, and so I'm answering. That's not what he's doing. He's never naming someone. But who he's speaking to is he is sitting there, and he is thinking in the same way that the people that are sitting down there are hearing him. And he's saying, you know what? You're going to think this, and let me give you the answer. You're going to think this, let me give you the answer. You think this, let me give you the answer. This is what you'll say, let me give you the answer. And he continues to point them away from their false teaching, their false thinking to the right way of thinking. And so what does he do in this? There's three questions that he asks in verses 1 through 8. And we'll run through them. You can write these down if you're taking notes, which I hope that you are. And the first question is this. What advantage is it to being a Jew? That's the first question. He says, what advantage is there to being a Jew? You can see that in verses 1 and 2. He says clearly, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? And then Paul gives the answer, much in every way. Why? Chiefly above everything else because to them were committed the oracles of God. See, because he went, remember chapter 2, we went through that. We went over time last week, right? We went through chapter 2, and chapter 2, he was crushing the idea that somehow Jews were better than everybody else on the planet. And so now their sarcasm comes up. Oh, okay, okay, so you say that. So, so, there, so then what's the big thing about me being a Jew? And he said, oh, there's some things. There, there, there's some reasons why there's an advantage here. You have been given the oracles of God. The second question that he deals with, verses 3 through 4, he says what? For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God of no effect? So the second question is what? If our, it is this. Will Jewish unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? That's what he was saying. They were saying, well, if people don't believe, then I guess God's not faithful. I guess God didn't mean for them to believe then. I guess that's the reality of what's going on here is what they say. What does Paul answer? He says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome them when you are judged. What is he quoting from? It's important for us to think about this. It's important for us to realize he's quoting from the book of Psalms, chapter 51, where David is saying this before this part of the verse. He doesn't quote the whole thing there, but before this part of the verse, David says what? Against you and you alone have I sinned. David is recognizing his sinfulness, and so God's judgment, his, his disobedience, his unbelief. You know why this is so important for us? Because for us in our day, you know what a lot of times we do? When people are unfaithful, we credit God for that. When people are sinful, we credit God for that. When people do things wrong, we say, oh, well, I guess God willed it. Hold on a second. Wait, time out. We don't serve an evil God. We don't serve a wicked God. We don't serve a God who ordains evil. The only thing that God does when it comes to judgment's sake is what he does is if you are sinning against him. Oh, now we're talking some different stuff. But God doesn't, listen, I, I need you to get this. I need you to grasp this. God doesn't rejoice in evil. Calamity comes upon those who do what? They reap what they have been sowing. Are you here? If we read our Bibles from the beginning to the end, we see this. It is not God who puts stumbling stones in front of people just because he wants them to trip. Are you here? What he does is he allows, you to, he allows you to make your choices, your decisions, and you experience the repercussions of that. 
And then there are things that are just rough and there are things that are ugly. And God is there saying, yeah, because what? Because I'm trying to draw you to repentance. I allow those things to happen. But as the writer here says, he's like, look, he says, if, if people are unfaithful, then that, that means that God is not faithful. He says, it's absolutely not. People's unfaithfulness actually establishes God's faithfulness. Because what? Because God is faithful to judge justly. He doesn't just leave you to just do your own thing and that there's no judgment. No, no, no. Brings us to our third question that we find here. And the third question is actually a two-part question, right? Because it's the same question, but it's really two questions that come out of here. They're from the same place. And so as you read from verse 5 to verse, to verse 8, it says this. He says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? And so he's saying, look, if I, y'all remember chapter two, right? What did he say? He said there, it is the goodness of God that brings us to repentance, right? And so when God shows his goodness, it is what? It is in a response to our sinfulness. So the, so, so the writer is going to argue, well, hey, I should just continue in sin. May it never be. Are you here? I, I, I just continue in sin because, hey, God's grace is seen in my sin. Okay, so the writer goes on and he says this. He says, and he says in verse 7, or he says certainly in verse 6, certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? If you just continue in sin because it shows his goodness, God can't judge, right? And so he goes and he, verse 7, he says, for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged? Did you, did you hear that question? If God's truth is enhanced by my lie? Why is God upset? So here's what it is. I want to give you this. The, 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 the major premise is this. Listen to this now. Here's the major premise of what, of what the argument is. It is when God forgives sinners, his grace is manifested. Will we all say amen to that? When God forgives sinners, his grace is manifested. The minor premise is this. I am a sinner, right? And so here's the conclusion. The conclusion is the more I sin, the more opportunity for God to manifest his grace. Hello. Right? That's the argument that Paul is saying that these, that these hearers are going to have. And here's the conclusion. We do not do evil that good may come of it. God judges the world righteously. Now listen, when we think about this, here's what we have to remember. We have to remember that he's answering questions that lead or, or are seeking justification. They're seeking a way to justify their behavior. Well, I seek a way to justify, well, hey, it doesn't matter that I'm Jewish. And Paul is like, no, no, it matters for something because you've gotten the oracles of God. Well, you know, it doesn't matter because what? Because I can go ahead and I can sit here and I can sin and I can do whatever I want to do. And Paul is like, no, 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 you can't just sit here and sin and do what you want to do. That is problematic as well. And is God unfaithful because some people have not believed? No, nope, that's not a reason for you to say, well, it, it's all on God. No, no, no. There's responsibility that we have. And so in a culture, see, their culture, just like our culture, in a culture that seeks the least amount of accountability and by nature rejects God's authority and his commands, what are we to do? What are we to do in these situations? Here what we, we must do. We must pray for grace to disarm the stronghold arguments of justification, and that begins by confronting and dismantling our own. Let me say it again. We must pray for grace to disarm the stronghold arguments of justification, and that begins by confronting and dismantling our own. You see, the reality is this, is that we live in a culture that is bound in their self-justification. 
Okay, so there's justifications all over our culture. There's justifications for lying all over our culture. There's justifications for cheating all over our culture. There's justifications for being deceitful all over our culture. There's justifications for all kind of stuff. You talk to enough people, there's justification why I don't want to be a Christian. There's justification why I don't want to go to church. There's justification why I'm a homosexual. There's justification why I want to be a, an adulterer. There's justification, all kinds of justification. You get my point, right? And so here's the thing. We must pray because what those justifications are, they are strongholds in the minds of all of those that are out there. But can I tell you something? Until you and I address our strongholds, we're never going to dismantle theirs. You know why? Because I'm going to sit down with the person. And, you know, I think about how Jesus dismantled the justifications in people's minds. When he was dealing, when the woman was brought to him who was caught in adultery, Jesus didn't say, hey, I understand why you commit adultery. Did he say that? Did he ever say, I, you know, I feel like, I feel like, he didn't ever say anything like that. What did he say? I don't condemn you. Go sin no more. He didn't play the game of, I have to empathize with you in order to deliver you. No. The, the reason why is because there was no sin in him. There was no bondage in him. But you know what we do? When we sit there and we start empathizing, because I see this all the time within our culture. We start saying, we understand how you feel. And I feel like you feel. And all this kind of stuff. You know what happens most of the time? We're never over that. We're still stuck in that. We're still feeling that. We haven't let God deliver us from that. And so how can I bring you freedom when I'm still bound? I can tell you how I feel and understand how you feel, but I can't tell you how God delivered me. I'm still wrestling with that same thing. I'm still dealing with that same thing. I haven't held on to God's truth. I haven't let, let those things be disarmed and dismantled in my life. And so we have to pray for the grace of God to disarm those strongholds of justification. Not empathize with everybody and sympathize with everything that's going on. We need to be compassionate. We need to care about what people are going through. But we need to deal with the own, our own self-justifications. We need to deal with those things inside of our hearts that make us feel okay being how we are. Those things are not okay if we want to bring freedom. I don't know about you, but do you want to bring freedom to this world? Do you want to bring freedom to your neighbors? Do you want to bring freedom to your family? Do you want to bring freedom to your I mean, I'm thinking I do, right? I hope. I mean, my goodness, I preach like I want to see freedom. So I would hope that if you're hearing me that you want to see freedom too. Well, if you're not free, how are you going to bring freedom? You can't. It's just not, it, it's not, not logical. The second thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, God's righteousness judges us as equally sinful. I know this goes from bad to worse. It's okay. Right? Like maybe get off the hook. No. God's righteousness judges us as equally sinful. So what does he do? So in case it wasn't clear, the apostle continues to demolish any idea that anyone, Jew or Gentile, is capable of being just before God. How does he do that? Let's read this together really quickly, and then we're going to come back and unpack this. So in verse 9, he says, what then? Are we better than they? And he says, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. When did he do that? He just did this in the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. He has already made this argument crystal clear. And nobody is better. But what does he do? He says, as it is written. This is so important for you to grasp. When he is saying, as it is written, what is he talking about? And I, and I say this, I make this point because this is so very important for the days in which we live. Because there are people that are out there that will make you or want you to believe that the Old Testament does not matter to us as New Testament believers. I want you to know that is a lie. 
If we do not have the Old Testament, we do not have the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. If we do not have the Old Testament, we do not have the New Testament. Are you here? If we don't have the Old Testament, we don't have anything to look back that gives us history to stand upon. Now, listen, I've said this before tons of times. We are not bound under the laws that are ceremonial because Jesus finished those. We're not bound under the social laws because God is not making us Jewish. But when we look at the Ten Commandments, I need you to know this. When you go past the cross, nine of them made it. Are you here? Nine of them made it. So, okay, we don't keep the Ten Commandments. We keep the Nine Commandments. Hello. The point is what? The point is that we cannot disregard the Old Testament. Why? Because no New Testament apostle did. The New Testament matters and the Old Testament matters, but we don't have the New Testament if we don't have the Old Testament. Why? Because what does Paul do throughout all of the time in his epistles? He expounds on over and over and over again. What? The Old Testament. He's showing you how to apply. When these people, listen, when you think about it, you know when when the writer of Hebrews, we're not sure who it was, when the writer of Hebrews said that God's word is living and active, sharper than any any two-edged sword, can I tell you something? He was talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been canonized yet. Are you here? He was saying this law over here. Whenever the Bible, whenever you see in the New Testament that he's talking about Scripture, all Scripture is inspired of God, right, and is profitable for training, instruction, rebuke, correction, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every word. Can I tell you what he was talking about? Old Testament. Are you here? This is super important for us to grasp because Paul does what? He goes through the Old Testament. Look what he says. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. Now, let's just pause there. Because when he's quoting here, verses 10 through 12, he's quoting Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, and that is also repeated in the book of Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. And this is what it indicates to us, that the whole of man's inner being is controlled and corrupted by sin. What did he say? He said, first of all, none understands. What does that mean? His mind is corrupted by sin. And then the next thing, there is none that seeks after God. That's a heart issue. His heart is corrupted by sin. And the last thing is what? That there is none that does good. That is because his will is corrupted by sin. Do you understand the corruption that is within us? Within us. Within us is creation. We are corrupted by sin. Our will, our heart, our mind is completely corrupted. And what does that do? What that does is it points us to the rest. And look what it says. Because all of us is corrupted, their throat is an open tomb. I thought that was such a weird thing to say, right? Like, what does that actually mean? And, and tombs are closed up, right? Like in our day, it's a little bit different, right? Because people are embalmed and all this kind of stuff happens. And so, I mean, there's still decay. But in those days, they didn't have the same type of stuff that we have. And so one of the things that they did was they sealed those tombs out of honor and respect in one sense, but also to keep the stench away. And you know what Paul is saying when he's, when he's repeating what the psalmist was saying? This is what he's saying. He's saying their throat is like an open tomb. And you know, you know what this reflects? This reflects their heart. 
Because what? It is out of the heart that corruption comes. Corrupt thoughts, corrupt action. It comes from the heart. And so Paul is saying, listen, there is deep corruption. Their heart, their mouth, their throat is like an open tomb. With their tongue, they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace, they have not known. And why is this because there is no fear of God before their eyes period we're messed up we're messed up we need someone to save us we need someone to deliver us we can't do it ourselves we will never be good enough. We will never have it all together. Paul makes it crystal clear. When we're measured by God's perfect righteousness, no human being is sinless. The bottom line is this. No sinner seeks after God. Therefore, God must seek sinners. Are you here? We have all gone astray. We have, be, we have all become unprofitable. That is a reality. And Paul has no problem reminding the church about this because there's some people in the church who seem to think that they're not sinful, that they don't sin, that they are above reproach, that they have no corruption in them, that they're walking in perfection. This is just not a reality. This is not a reality. And so here's the thing. I know that's depressing, but listen, coming to terms with our inability to save or justify ourselves is not cause for us to throw our hands up in despair, but to bow our hearts in repentance and faith in Christ alone. See, when I come to the end of myself reading, as I was sitting there, I was just grateful that I know the rest of the story, right? Because as I'm sitting there, and as some of you, you might be feeling this weight on you right now. Listen, the only thing that gave me comfort is that I know the rest of chapter 3 is coming and the rest of the book is coming. Right? I know what Jesus has done, and so I'm encouraged by that. But you know what has to happen for us sometimes? Sometimes we have to sit and soak in the weight of that conviction. We have to understand the depth of our corruption. We have to understand our inability to walk in righteousness because it does a couple of things. One of them is it points us to our Savior, but it also helps us to love one another better. Because we understand that we can be, and in most cases are, the greatest sinner in the room. Are you here? See, the reason why the Apostle Paul could love like he did is because he understood the depth of his sin. He understood the depth of his wretchedness, which will bring us to our third point of encouragement. Hallelujah. <laughs> there you go. You got to laugh in. Say this with me. God's righteousness, God's righteousness exposes, exposes our inability, inability to save ourselves, to save ourselves from, our sin. from our sin. And so he wraps up this point and we'll wrap it up together. He says, now we know. That whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. To close his argument, the, the apostle Paul does what? He circles back to the law. Remember earlier on? The first question that they asked. What benefit is there to being a Jew? And what did he say? What did he say? Much in every way, because to you 
has been given, the oracles of God. Listen, their greatest asset now became their greatest adversary. Their greatest asset was God's word. They knew what God's law said. They knew what God's law communicated. And that thing that was there, we have God's words. Now that thing became their greatest adversary. Oh, you have God's words. And you know what God's words say. And you know what God's words show you? They don't show you how righteous you can be. They show you how righteous you cannot be. They don't show you how great you are. They show you how not great you are. They show you how much you need a savior. That is why the book of Galatians says what? It says that the law was a tutor to bring us to who? To Christ. To bring us to Jesus. That's what the law does. The law confronts us and say, man, you're a sinner. The law confronts us and say, man, you fall short. The law confronts us and shows us you will never fulfill the law perfectly. It causes what? Every mouth to be stopped and the whole world to be what? To be guilty before God. Why? God's law is clear. His standards are high. His ways are pure. And we all stand condemned. If we're a Jew by birth and nationality, then we are condemned before God because of his commands. If we are a Gentile, we are condemned before God because of creation and our conscience. Are you here? And you know what chapter 2 said? Chapter 2 said something that was really cute. It said this. It said those, it's not those who hear the law that are justified, but those who keep the law. Can I tell you something? There is no one. Let's read it together. He says, therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is what? The knowledge of sin. So check it out. Nobody can keep the law perfectly. None of us can keep the law perfectly. When we come face to face or heart to heart with the holy law of our holy, holy, holy God, our mouths will be stopped, our justification silenced, and we will bow in repentance and faith, or we will run in anger and rejection seeking justification elsewhere. So here's my closing question for you. Are you living in total surrender and reliance upon God and his grace? Are you living in total surrender and reliance upon God and his grace? Think about this for a moment. Before you answer this, I want you to think about this. In what area or areas of your life are you feeling condemned? Like you're not enough. I want you to think about that. There was a lot of weight here as I was, as I was preaching. I could feel it. I felt it when I was sitting in my study all week long and I was going through this on Thursday especially. I was like, man. But in what area... Or areas of your life, are you feeling condemned? You just feel like, man, I'm not enough. Maybe it's in your, in your marriage. Maybe, man, I'm not enough. Maybe it's in your, in your parenting. Maybe it's, I'm not enough. Maybe it's in your finances. I don't know. I'm not enough. Maybe it's as an employer, as an employee. I'm not enough. Maybe, I don't know where it is, but where is it that you are not depending upon him and his grace? See, because here's the encouraging part. And this is what I want to challenge you to do today. Is, is, is I want to challenge you to rest. I want to challenge you to rest today, right? As we have looked at all of this, and this is really ugly, right? Like everything that I said, I want to challenge you to rest, but, I, but not just like a slothful Saturday morning rest, like when you don't want to do nothing rest. I'm not talking about that. 
I'm talking about like active rest, right? I, I know some of you have worked out before, and there's a difference between sitting down like, ah, right? And then that active rest. And I know, I, I can tell you, honestly, I hate active rest, right? Like just being straight up, right? Like once I work out, like I don't want to do no active rest. I don't want to sit there and keep walking. Why? I just ran. Like, like I just finished doing a thousand burpees. Why do I want to keep on walking? Why do I want to want to row 500 meters? Why do I want to? I don't want to do any of that. I just want to sit down. Matter of fact, I want to lay down and throw up somewhere. Are you here? I'm just keeping it 100 with you, right? Like I did P90X and I wanted to throw something at this guy by the end of it. If you've ever done it, like at the end, he's like, all right, stand there and do it. I'm like, shut up. Like, I don't want to do anything anymore. I already did everything for the last 30, 45 minutes. But, but so active rest is not something that I personally enjoy. But listen, I want to call you to an active rest. That's what Christianity is. It's an active rest. And so the first thing is this. I want you to rejoice in God's grace. Active rest begins with rejoicing in God's grace. Rejoice in what Jesus has done. Rejoice in what Christ did on the cross for you. Rejoice in the power of his grace toward you. Rejoice in everything that your Savior has done for you, either revealed in Scripture or that you see in your life. Listen, I know some of you are going through hell in your life. I know some of you are going through difficulty in your life. But can I tell you something? If you will take the time and look back just a little bit, you will see God's grace. And can I tell you something else? If you're still breathing today, you can see God's grace and you can rejoice in it. He may not have changed whatever situation you want, but he is walking with you through it. That is God's grace. Rejoice in that reality. The second thing that, that the active rest is, it is engage with God's truth. Don't just rejoice and don't just keep it there, but engage with God's truth. In other words, Jesus said he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. So truth is not just a thing, it is a person. Engage with him. Engage with him. Spend time in prayer over his word. Listen, learn to take your Bibles. And, and listen, I know some of you, you know, you read your Bibles on your apps and all that stuff. That's all good. I'm not going to tell you not to do that. I will tell you this, though. There is something special about opening up pages. There is something special about having your Bible. I don't know if you ever had something like that. Like your Bible. That, that someone else hands you a Bible and you're like, man, I, I can't find it. But if I go to my Bible. Engage with the truth of who God is. Weep over those promises that you see in the scriptures. Engage with him. Thank him. Give him glory. Engage with the truth of the scriptures. And then the, the, the yes there is for you to surrender to God's will. Rejoice in God's grace. Engage with God's truth and then surrender to God's will. Listen, God's will is, is most of the time it's painful. Most of the time, it's not easy. Like when God is calling you to do something, man, it's just not. Listen, surrender. As you're there, as you're rejoicing, as you're engaging, surrender. God, your will, not my will. No matter how difficult it is, your will, not my will. I'm not looking for comfort. I'm looking for peace. I'm not looking for the comfortable life. I'm looking for the joy that sustains me, that strengthens me, right? Surrender to his will. And the last thing, trust God's promises. Trust God's promises. Listen, I know that I've said this before that I was going to look up how many promises are on the New Testament. And I'm not going to lie to you. I cheated. I Googled it. I didn't go and look up every one of them. 
I Googled it. You know what they said? They said that there are 750 promises in the New Testament. Most of them are repeated promises. So if you break down all of the repetitions, there are 250 promises in the New Testament. Now, I want to warn you, not every one of these promises is good. Some of them are promises like eternal punishment is a promise. It's a guarantee. It's a reality. It's not something you're like, Lord, I'm standing on eternal punishment. No. But what I want you to realize is this, is that there are promises in the New Testament. And in the book of Romans alone, you know how many promises there are? 31 promises in the book of Romans alone. 31 promises throughout the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, we find one of the greatest promises that we all know very well. You know, for we know that all things work together for good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. We know that the scripture says that God will never leave us nor forsake us. We know that God promises that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. Listen, those three promises alone can take me to heaven and get you through whatever. But can I tell you something? That's only three. There's another 250. Go dig them up. That's the only way you're going to trust the promises is by digging them up in the truth of scripture. And so active rest. My question is this. Will you trust him today? Will you rest in him today? Maybe you need to trust him for salvation. Maybe you need to put your faith in Jesus. You've never done that. Or you need to reconcile your life to him. Like you need to come back to that relationship with him. Maybe you need to trust him for your sanctification. That he is working out his will in you. That he is making you more like Jesus. Will you rest in the finished work of the cross and the powerful resurrection of Jesus for strength and hope and the fulfillment of his purpose in your life? Will you do that today? That's my hope. My hope is that you will. My hope is that you know you cannot do it on your own. My hope is that you know that it is in Christ, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. So I stand on our feet. Let's pray together. God, thank you so, so much for your glory, your power, your mercy that is so, so great. God, thank you that we can rest in you. Thank you that we can trust in you. Thank you that we can hope in you. Thank you that we can put our lives in your hands and know, Lord God, that you care for us. Lord, today I pray that as I have challenged us as your people to rest in you in an active way, Lord, may we rest. Help us to rejoice in what you have done. Help us to engage with you, God, in your word and prayer and worship, Lord God. Help us to surrender, my God, and help us to trust. Let us rest in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. Come on, put your hands together for Jesus.